1: Today on the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. We'll look at the $1.7 trillion spending bill now passed by both houses of Congress. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton.
2: I believe under the circumstances, it was the best practical outcome we were going to get, especially for our military.
1: And economist Stephen Moore. They're playing Santa Claus with you and my money, folks. They're going to bankrupt this country, these politicians. We'll look at the Ukraine's efforts against Russian aggression.
3: There's already talk coming out of Zelensky's government that they're aiming for February to begin negotiations with with Russia.
1: And the struggle of the U.S. and allies to give Zelensky what he needs.
3: We are at the end of our ability in America and the NATO countries to continue to supply the heavy weapons that are critical.
1: All this and more, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on Twitter at Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. As the nation entered the Christmas holiday weekend, the House passed a $1.7 trillion spending bill. There was widespread criticism of the Republicans who supported the omnibus bill. And that number includes Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton who voted in favor of the measure. Senator Cotton was a guest on my program. Senator, I got a note over the weekend from a very loyal listener who said, would you please ask Senator Cotton why he voted for this uh, horrible omnibus? And I explained to him, in my view, I would have voted for it because I need the national security money, and the House might not be working for a couple of months. Why did you?
2: Hugh, that's basically right. Uh, I understand uh, your listener's point of view. There's certainly a lot to dislike in the deal. Um, but it does secure a sizable and badly needed increase in defense spending without an equivalent increase in domestic spending. And that's at a time that China is rapidly arming up and our troops uh, in many cases are struggling mightily uh, without a pay raise. Um, The bill also includes a few other smaller priorities like higher sentences for fentanyl traffickers, uh, the ban on TikTok on U.S. government devices, I got my amendment in at the last minute um, that adds the 9-11 families and the Beirut Marine barracks bombing families to the terror victim fund. Um, So those were good small wins in it. There's a lot to dislike in the bill, though. But I believe under the circumstances, it was the best practical outcome we were going to get, especially for our military. Um, After the new year, uh, while we're going to have a new Republican House, you're also going to have Democrats in charge of the Senate still. And I suspect they would have demanded a ransom in the form of tens of billions of, higher, tens of, billions of dollars in higher domestic spending than this bill contained, uh, probably uh, not acceptable to a Republican House. So in the end, what you might have had is a months-long or even years-long stalemate with a series of stopgap funding measures that wouldn't have only lost the sizable increase we gained in defense spending – but also would have frozen defense spending and defense programs where they were last year. And I just think that's a a dangerous and risky proposition, given the threat we face from China. Now, all all that said, Hugh, again, I I agree with your listener that a lot of bad stuff in the bill. And also the process is not good. So what we want to do in the new Congress, and we want to do it early, you know, we want to do it in the spring. We don't want to do it in the third week of December, is find the time to kind of put our foot down and demand that Chuck Schumer – um, do what I expect the House will do, which is bring up uh, the annual spending bills in an orderly fashion that allows them to be debated and amended and voted on separately. Um, a lot of a lot of Senate Republicans, whether they voted for or against the bill or committed that, we just have to maintain that focus in the spring.
1: Yeah, Senator Cotton Ken Calvert will be the chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee in the House. He'll be the chairman. They'll pass a responsible appropriation when the NDAA gets done in 2023. It will finally have at least a House version that fully funds it. Do you think there is a possibility, given the ominous nature of the war in Ukraine and of China's continued acceleration of armament, that you might actually get an NDAA and a defense appropriations bill through before summer? I mean, that would be a rational thing to do.
2: I, I hope so, Hugh. Again, this goes back to- The failures of democratic leaders during my time in the senate first harry reid and since chuck schumer uh, to bring forward the defense authorization bill and the defense spending bill in a responsible timely fashion we haven't gotten to this position uh because of a failure across the board of members of congress to prioritize these fundamental tasks of government Uh, it's because chuck schumer and harry reid and then the democrats who march in lockstep with them thinks it's to their advantage to wait until the very last week of the year to pass both of those bills. And, again, this is what I mean when I say we, we need to find a time to put our foot down early when Schumer has his priorities, and we say that unless we start addressing the nation's priorities as well, we simply aren't going to give you the uh, votes you need to move forward in the Senate on your business. Um, I, I don't know exactly when that moment will be. It will take 41 Republicans and hopefully 49 Republicans aligning and staying in agreement and holding firm on something early in the year to try to force uh, Schumer to have something like a uh, regular and orderly process. Um, I do think the House is going to do those things, and that'll put, that should put pressure on uh, Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democrats as well.
1: Senator Cotton, I want to ask you about uh, what Admiral Mark Montgomery, retired, said to me, that the Taiwan measures in the bill are the, fir- the most substantive since the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. Do you agree with that assessment?
2: There are a lot of very good measures, not quite as much as I would have liked, but a lot of very good measures. You, you saw China once again sending dozens of uh, air, military aircraft around in and around Taiwan's airspace just in recent days. It's a reminder of how important it is that we help Taiwan arm up and do so rapidly.
1: Now, one of the things the Admiral told me is we don't even have the submarine production capacity in the United States to help the AUKUS countries Australia, and specifically build their nuclear submarine force. Is that correct in your view?
2: Yeah, Hugh, our our, uh, shipbuilding capacity to include submarine building capacity has fallen behind where it once was and where it needs to be. That's kind of a a story across our defense industry, still a leader in the world, but can't do things like, uh, can't produce things like basic munitions at a rapid enough rate uh, just for the war in Ukraine alone. So imagine what it would be like if we faced a war with China over Taiwan, uh, or imagine how China perceives our ability to deter China from going for the jugular in Taiwan, given the challenges we're seeing in our defense uh, industry right now.
1: Now, Senator, I want to turn to Ukraine. What was your reaction to uh, President Zelensky's message?
2: I thought the speech was well put. He expressed his gratitude to the American people uh, for their generous support for his military thus far uh, and reiterated, that he's not asking for American troops to fight Ukraine's war for them. He's simply asking for the military support that his own troops need to fight that war. As he put it, Ukrainian soldiers are more than capable of driving American tanks and flying American aircraft. (laughs) I think that was a a subtle point to President Biden, who continues, in my opinion, to uh, be uh, too frightful of providing more advanced weaponry to Ukraine, even though we now have a nearly year-long pattern. President Biden denying certain kinds of weapons like anti-aircraft missiles or high Mars rocket systems or now Patriot missile defense systems that are then provided three or four months later, uh, when if they had been provided in a timely fashion, uh, you might not have seen the invasion occur in the first place or you might not have seen Russia take so much territory that Ukraine has to fight to retake.
1: Senator, are you worried about, you know, I am not worried about Ukraine invading Russia. I know that they sent a drone in to hit an Air Force base over the weekend. I know there's an occasional reciprocal attack, but I don't think there's anyone that doubts that Russia is engaged in systemic war crimes, that they are using missiles against innocent civilians and intentionally targeting civilians. Moreover, there are massacres in places like Bukha. Is there any doubt in your mind that Ronald Reagan would have advanced weaponry to Ukraine on the scale that we are doing so?
2: No question whatsoever, Hugh. I think you can see uh, from what happened in <clears throat> Afghanistan, uh, which was a largely covert operation conducted by our intelligence agencies, that he did not have qualms uh, about arming um, partners and allies, especially the enemies of our enemies all around the world. Uh, the Ukrainian people uh, are not aggressors here. Um, they're not guilty. Uh, Russia launched a war of inv- invasion uh, against Ukraine in February, and now Russia, as you say, is killing women and children and trying to make civilian populations suffer. Um, I, I think we should support those people in their efforts to fight back and defend their own territory, which, as Winston Churchill said earlier in the history of the British-speaking peoples, is the primordial right of any people to die and to fight and kill for its own land.
1: After the profligate spending from the Biden administration over the course of these past two years, another $1.7 trillion in spending is, for many, a rough pill to swallow including economist Stephen Moore. who was a guest of Joe Piscopo on AM 970, The Answer, in New York
4: City. What's going to go on with the budget? We go into the new year. The, there's a new, new House of Representatives. Ah, there, there is hope out there in light at the end of the tunnel, Stephen Moore, yes? Uh, there is, you know, that atrocious abomination of a
5: yeah, massive yeah. two trillion dollars spending. But I'm so mad. I mean, I, thanks for ruining my morning show bringing <laughs> that up. But, you know, that's two trillion dollars. <laughs> we can't afford that. And you know I what? Know. It's Republicans. The Republicans were in it on on at this time. You know, uh, it was yeah. it was Mitch McConnell and it was the, the half the Republicans in the Senate. You know, held hands with with uh, with um, with uh, Chuckie Schumer and they I built the that, that, I that know. bill. Now we're I, I, running another trillion dollar so We don't have the money. I mean, as I put it, they played Santa Claus, but they're playing Santa Claus with your and my money, folks. They're going to bankrupt this country, these politicians. I mean, I, I'm kind of angry about it because the Republicans talk a good game, but they love to bring the the, the bacon home to their districts, too.
4: Yeah, that's what that was. It was all pork uh, oriented, apparently. Yeah, it was. I, I, I mean, yep. the, and doesn't this just make the inflation well, get the way, even?
5: 4,200 four, 4, yeah. 4, pages. No, no, well, yeah. none of these congressmen, senators even know what's in that bill. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, you think they, How many of you think about that bill?
4: I know, I know, I know. No one. I don't you think know. anybody reads it. You no. Know. And but yeah, th- doesn't know. this drive inflation up like through the roof even greater? Well, of because course. yeah, yeah, well, I know. yeah, Joe. I mean, this is it's we have the nine
5: percent inflation this past year because of the big wow. runaway spending, and then the Republicans wow. get that get in, and they win, and then they. You Spend money too. I mean, politicians love to spend other people's money. I mean, that's what they what they love to it's do. So true. We got to bring this up to. It. But you know, twenty twenty two was a bad year for the stock market, no question. A really bad year for the stock market. But I do think twenty three. I think it's going to be better. We got a Republican House now.
6: It'll yeah, be okay. Check
5: some and balances. So yeah, but I think you know the next few months could be tough. I mean, uh, the, you pay a high price when you've got that high inflation and draining out. It's like chemotherapy. You got to get rid of the inflation. But until we do, we're not going to have a health economy.
4: So it looks like we're doing okay. Um, and Listen, uh, Stephen, we appreciate your optimistic overview, but I know the gas prices are going to go up, the interest rate. Yeah, buying a house now is almost impossible. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, all of this, it, hopefully, well, look, we got a couple more years of this guy, and I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Hopefully, <laughs> like you said, the, but you're feeling the house will put the checks and balances in place that will s- per- perhaps get this economy under control just a little bit, yes?
5: Uh, I do. You know, and, and we made, then I, you know, January February, March could be tough because we're going to face a little bit of the backlash from all that. But I but I think we can get the economy going. And I ne- look, never bet against America. It's that simple. Never bet against America.
1: Coming up, Ukraine's efforts to thwart Russia's Putin.
3: There's already talk coming out of Zelensky's government that they're aiming for February to begin negotiations with Russia.
1: When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment.
7: Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu
1: capitalism. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt. I think it's pretty safe to say that Ukraine has defied the odds in their efforts to deter Russian aggression. Yes, their successes are tied closely to the substantive military aid they have received from the U.S. and Europe. But they have also shown a remarkable and admirable willingness to fight to defend their own homeland. They have suffered a toll of some 18,000 civilian casualties. Seth Leepson turned to author and analyst Brandon Weikert. From AM 960, the Patriot in Phoenix. We used
3: to say our readiness was to be able to fight on two fronts, and right. uh, it begs the question whether we can even do one right now. Yeah, yeah, no, we can't. The weapons stocks, the heavy weapons stocks uh, that we rely on uh, to send to Ukraine are at record lows. And uh, there's already talk coming out of uh, Zelensky's government that they're aiming for February to begin negotiations with with Russia. Now, this is of course a complete reversal from what they were saying even up to a week ago, which is we're going to fight to the bitter end. And I think the reason they're saying that is because even they are aware now that we are at the end of our ability in America and the NATO countries to continue to supply the heavy weapons that are critical. Uh, for Ukraine to continue their resistance. But what we're seeing now is a massive um, rebuilding effort by Russia. Uh, The Russians have weathered a very bad loss thus far, but um, it looks like there are these facilities in Russia on the other side of the Ural Mountains that are going into high gear in terms of replenishing the Russian weapons that have been depleted. Uh, And we know also that uh, Russia is getting these weapons systems not only from Iran, but it turns out they're getting ballistic missiles from North Korea as well. So, you know, we talk about our ability in the West to kind of maintain this supply chain into Ukraine, but, um, you know, the Russians have been having these problems as well, except they seem to be adapting better. And as I told you from the start of this conflict, the longer this conflict wears on, the more likely it is that the Russians will have an advantage. And it looks like we are now reaching a pivot point going into the new year, wherein the, 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 the balance of forces may finally be shifting in Russia's favor, which is a big problem. Uh, you know, Zelensky is now saying he might start negotiating in February, which is around the time many people are suspecting the Russians will do a renewed offensive. Well, why would the Russians do negotiations if they're about to begin a new offensive? So th- this is a big problem because the longer the war w- wages, uh, you know, the longer this goes on, the less likely the Americans are able to supply Ukraine. The longer it goes on, the less likely we're able to protect our other friends elsewhere, the weaker we look. And therefore, the more at risk the international system is from these revanchist powers like Russia, China, North Korea and Iran. And we are going to be bleeding ourselves or depleting our own stocks along the way. And impatience becomes uh, greater and greater as I'm guessing russia which is what three or four times the population of ukraine i'm guessing somewhere in that neighborhood i mean they can just continue to throw this out and slow play the whole fo- the whole fight can't they well yes that's true of course it's important to remember that unlike in the second world war where the russians were able to fight the nazis with basically just more manpower yeah, the russians d- yeah, do right. have a smaller population mm-hmm. today relatively speaking but yes compared to ukraine still and the Russians also have, again, they have Belarus, and there are a smattering of reports unconfirmed that indicate elements of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps may be on the ground as well in, uh, in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. There's also reports that elements of the Syrian Arab army, that's Bashar Al-Assad's army. Uh, are also on the ground in Ukraine, helping the uh, Russian forces there, augmenting them. Uh, there are even rumors that the North Koreans might be sending some troops in uh, yeah. under the command of Russians. So these are all rumors, but the point is, is that the Russians are also adapting to the environment. Um, and so, you know, this is why people like me, who are very pro-Ukraine, have been saying after those initial those incredible gains in the last four months. Where the the Ukrainians pushed all the way into eastern Ukraine, you know, unbelievably so. um, I was saying that they need to now not pivot for another offensive. They need to now consolidate what they have and push for a negotiated settlement because I. It looks like the Russians might be able to start adapting. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that they're not able to. But you're right. They have a larger population still, and Putin has now declared it an official war, whereas before it was a special military operation, um, and now he is basically 100% tied his existence as the sole leader of Russia to this uh, ability of achieving victory of some kind in Ukraine, which means he's not going to stop. This is going to be Stalin fighting Hitler. This is, this is going to be his patriotic war, um, and he is going to either win or die trying to win. And so if you're Ukraine, you have really done an incredible job, but you're now at the limits of what the West can provide you. And the West now needs to start looking around going, wait a second, we've become so myopic in focusing on Ukraine, we're forgetting about China, we're forgetting about Iran, we're forgetting about North Korea. And the longer we get stuck in Ukraine, the more likely we'll be unable to address other concerns in these other parts of the world. And one other thing about Afghanistan, had out of Afghanistan the way that Joe Biden did, which was sloppy and haphazard. Had we been able to show confidence to the world that we could both extricate ourselves without losing outright Afghanistan, it is highly unlikely that Russia would have been compelled to go for broke in Ukraine. But because we exhibited weakness, the Russians were inspired to push ahead into Ukraine, where otherwise they might have been resistant to doing that for fear of reprisal from us. Are Ukraine's interests here and the United States's interests, or Zelensky's interests and Biden's interests the same? Um, in one overarching sort of macro sense, they are. Um, in the sense of it doesn't serve either Ukraine obviously or American or European interest to have Russia trying to break out of its existing borders, pushing into southern, you know, eastern and southern Ukraine at the very least, and then you know, jumping from there into Transnistria, Moldova, into ultimately where they want to end up, which is Serbia, and creating sort of a southern European and kind of eastern European access of Slavic Russian dominated uh, zones. It doesn't serve our interest to have that, and so in that way, we've been very effective in slowing down, uh, a, a, you know, a revanchist Russian uh, power under Vladimir Putin. Now, where the interests begin to diverge is sort of in those particular elements, which is how far should we go in pushing back Russia? The Ukrainians under Zelensky have made it very clear; they're quite explicit. They not only want to hold the Western pro-American, pro-European, sophisticated part of Ukraine, uh, you know, for the West, they now want to, you know, liberate the eastern part, which has been under Russian occupation at least 2014, which is mostly Russian speaking and has a long history of being a Russian enclave. Um, The the Ukrainians want to go in there and they want to take those lands back and then they want to pivot and they want to roll down south and pick the, the, the Russians out of Crimea, which is, completely unfortunately a non-starter the russians will go nuclear at the very least over crimea and so it doesn't serve western or american interests to let the ukrainians go wild but ultimately it's completely impractical and outside of our capability at present to let to encourage the ukrainians to try to push into crimea try to kick the russians out of all of eastern ukraine
1: coming up The prevailing wisdom in the United States. This is the only approach, and if you don't do it this way, you're a hater, and it's wrong. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with it.
7: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. There is a crisis going on with America's youth today. It is a crisis that may have been exacerbated by the isolation brought on by the approach to the pandemic. But it is separate. It's unique. I'm referring to the spike in the numbers of youth undergoing treatment for gender dysphoria. But this approach we have taken to help these young people is in marked contrast to the treatment we are seeing in Europe, most recently from Sweden. Wesley Smith wrote about this in National Review. Smith was a guest of Ed Morrissey, senior editor at Hot Air, who sat in for me a day earlier this week. We're really doing a a tremendous amount of damage
8: to young people that I think are going to be very, very angry in about 10 or 15 years about what the medical establishment here in America has done to them.
6: I think we're in the middle of a social panic in this country with regard to this issue, particularly on the left. The Biden administration uh, is insisting that the only approach when a a child uh, questions their their sex is what's called gender-affirming care. That is, you immediately say, oh, yes, you are the other sex. Okay, yes, we will change your pronouns. Social affirmation. And then, very quickly, often this goes into what's called medical affirmation. I think it's uh, a violation of the Hippocratic Oath but things such as puberty blocking, meaning preventing natural puberty in children, uh, hormone, cross-hormone interventions, and so forth, and also surgeries. There was a recent study out of Vanderbilt that said that hundreds of minor girls are given mastectomies every year. The American approach in the New England Journal of Medicine, which has become the New England Ideological Journal of Medicine, uh, says, well, this is the only approach, and if you don't do it this way, you're a hater, and it's wrong.
8: You, you make the point here, or at least that you, you quote the uh, New England Journal of Medicine is making a point that um, who, sim- who apparently feels that therapy is more damaging than surgery, which is amazing to me. And you're right; I mean, it's completely an ideological point of view here.
6: And it, it and and it turns out um, that the science doesn't back it. Certainly the science doesn't back it in the sense of why it's as uh, settled as gravity, right? Because you now have a lot of Western European countries uh, beginning to really hit the brakes. The United Kingdom has hit the brakes on puberty blocking and surgery, says that um, the NHS has said, you know, a lot of times these feelings in children are transitory, that's the term they use. France has said there's been a an awful explosion of numbers here. We have to be careful. We're hitting the brakes. Finland is hitting the brakes, and most recently, Sweden just the new their health ministry basically said we're hitting the brakes because. Yep. And let me read this is from the um, the statement of the Swedes. Several factors have pointed toward increased caution in offering hormonal and surgical treatment. Insufficient scientific evidence a yet-to-be-explained increase in the number of people being diagnosed, especially 13- to 17-year-olds, less uniform experience-based knowledge among participating experts than in 2015, and the documented prevalence of detransition. They're saying, caution, that's the watchword. Be very deliberate, be very careful. And our country, especially the administration, The Democrat Party with the Equality Act and so forth are saying, full steam ahead. Well, who cares more for children? And let me point out, Sweden, U.K., France, Finland, which has done the same thing. They're not Bible Belt countries. These are socially liberal countries. So the idea that somehow it's a hater to want to have real caution when it comes to these children is ridiculous.
8: This has been something that the, that the hard left has been pursuing for a long time, and I think it's also part of the sort of the effort to undermine objective truth in favor of, and this gets back to your point about individualism, about your own truth, right, where you're basically right. the center of the universe, and your feelings are more important than actual facts and biology.
6: One of the things that really makes this so destructive generally, I'm not just talking about the children issue, is that it is, it is the triumph of the subjective. That whatever I feel inside is right. If everything becomes subjective, then there's no solid foundation upon which a society can rest and, and can be built upon, because everything is going to be in a constant churn and a constant hysteria.
8: And it's interesting in an era where we're constantly demanded to follow the science,
6: right? Science, the scientific method, requires give and take and discourse and debate. And what's really happened here, and you saw it with social media particularly, and and what Twitter is revealing is really important, is that people who have said, wait a second, we shouldn't be cutting off the breasts of 14-year-old girls have been silenced on social media. They've been canceled because the idea was, well, they're going against the science. Well, when you do things like that, when you stifle scientific
9: discussion and debate, that's anti-science. Coming up. Two students came up. I spoke on Marx's personal life, on how Marx was a racist, an anti-Semite, all these other things. And they came up and they said, we just had a full semester course on Marxism. And we've never heard any of this. Trying to teach the lessons of Marx and
1: communism when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
7: Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu capitalism.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her hard-left colleagues in the squad have made socialism popular among young people today. Young people who have something of a fascination or even an infatuation with Karl Marx and communism. But Paul Kengor, our next guest, is convinced that it really is an information grounded in ignorance. These young people really know very little about communism. Kanger's latest book, The Devil and Bella Dodd, one woman's struggle against communism and her redemption. He was a guest of Sebastian Gorka. When you talk to these 20-somethings or even 30-somethings, yes, they are
10: indoctrinated. Yes, they're told this is the only way to social justice, to have not even equality. Now it's forced equity. However, the indoctrination
9: pool is incredibly shallow. Today, you're right, Seb, it is really shallow. I spoke at a really elite university, I shouldn't name it, I won't, I'll get in trouble, in Pennsylvania last May, and two students came up, I spoke on Marx's personal life, on how Marx was a racist, and anti-Semite, all these other things, and they came up and they said, we just had a full semester course on Marxism, and we've never heard any of this. And we did not have to read the Communist Manifesto. I said, what did you read? And they said, just kind of like various excerpts from different articles. And really, we just took notes from what the professors talked about. So it, it was really shallow, and, and, which also means, here's the good news, that when, when you confront them with facts yeah. and with data, they are riveted. The hands are up in the air. They're asking the questions. And it doesn't take them long to say, man, we've been duped. We've been misinformed. It doesn't take them long at all for the light bulbs to go off. The only key is if you can even get somebody of my views to speak to them in the four years that they're at that university. Uh, Most of them are going to have to learn it when they leave. But uh, you're right. It's very shallow. Um,
10: But very briefly, could you say a few words on the blank Book of Communism?
9: Yeah, the Black Book of Communism came out at the end of the last century, 1999, 99. It was It was translated by Harvard University Press. It was originally published in French. Uh, Stéphane Courtois was the editor. And all the different chapters are written, by and large, by leftists, former leftists, and ex-communists who said, look, we've got to come to terms with the fact that we were sympathetic to or supported a communist ideology, which was an absolute killing machine, Right? I, you know, they knew that this was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people, if not 100 million people. One of the things they set out to do in that 800-page book was try to put an estimate, a tag, on just how many people died from communism. But, but country
10: by country, that's the stunning thing. These, these, by- are, these are socialist historians, sociologists, chapter by chapter, from Tsarist Russia to Cambodia, country by country, and it is a truly academic work. It changed the lives of the authors, Courtois included, and they yeah. came up with the seminal number that in the 20th century, a hundred million people were murdered in the name of Marxist ideology. So, if you haven't read it, uh, it is a reference work, and it's it's you know it's the empirical evidence of just how lethal this idea is. That's the Black Book of Communism, edited by Stephen Courtois. Sorry, go ahead.
9: That's okay. And the 100 million figure, uh, China is uh, 62 or 65 million. And Russia is only 20 or 25 million. And in fact, um, Solzhenitsyn and others, Robert Conquest from Hoover, you know, they say 60, 70 million. Um, Alexander Yakovlev's Yale University Press Book, A Century of Violence in Soviet Russia, which came out 2003 or 2004. He was Gorbachev's chief reformer, and he was given the job of counting the skulls at the end of the Cold War, and trying to find out how many people were killed. And Yakovlev, Seb, says in that book that, quote, Stalin alone annihilated 60 to 70 million people, unquote. Wow. So you know, the, the real numbers, it's a minimum of 100 million. Um, the Black Book underestimated the number of deaths in North Korea. So it's probably more like 130, 140 million, which would be double the combined death tolls of World War I and World War II.
10: Correct. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. A uh, hundred. Uh, it was sixty million that died in World War Two. So at least, at least hundred million, if not uh, two hundred million, killed in the name of equality, in the name of socialist utopia. Uh, Hot off the presses is The Devil and Bella Dodd, co-authored with Mary Nichols, One Woman's Struggle Against Communism and Her Redemption. This book has some shocking things to say about the infiltration of the religious establishment in the United States, does it not?
9: Yeah, it sure does. And really to segue from what you said before about the name-calling, the things that they engage in, Bella Dodd was like a female Whitaker Chambers. And when she left the party in June 1948, she gets a call at her home from an AP reporter who says, Dr. Dodd, we have a statement here from the Communist Party. It says that you are anti-Negro, anti-Puerto Rican, anti-Semitic, pro-fascist, pro-Nazi. Do you have a statement to make, ma'am? <laughs> right? And it's just its exactly what they, I mean, they yeah. said. They've been doing this for 100 years. I, I mean, this is, that's page one of the playbook. As soon as they want to go after you, they just go, oh, page one, what does this say? Oh, oh, I see racist, right? Yeah, it's, it's, the,
10: it's the Alinsky tactics of, you know, uh, <laughs> isolate, triangulate, and then destroy. That's, that's the Alinskyite left-wing tactics, whether it's, you know, Bella Dodd in the 50s, whether it's Whitaker Chambers in the 60s, it doesn't matter.
9: So tell us about a little bit about this woman's journey and what made her see the light. Yeah, by the way, Alinsky said that the reason he never joined the Communist Party is he could never subject himself to communist party discipline <laughs> and the and and the communist party discipline was brutal if you broke ranks that's what they did to you but she joined the party 1930s really joined formally in 1943 when she became a card carrying communist because at that point, everyone knew that she was. She was one of the highest-ranking women in the, in the party, if not the highest-ranking woman in the party. And she ran the teachers' union. She ran the education front. Said, she put a th- She said this under Senate testimony. FBI said this in FBI reports. Out of 10,000 members of the New York State Teachers' Union, Bella Dodd placed 1,000 to 1,500 communists. She had 500 communist teachers marching in the, in the May Day 1936 parade in New York City. So she was a master organizer, master infiltrator, the Longshoremen's Union, all sorts of other groups. And at one point, and really this is the heart of our book, they went to her. She said that she helped, quote, place over a thousand communist men, unquote, in Catholic seminaries. Now, this shouldn't shock people because the party was already doing this to the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church. But in Bella's case, they they actually went after the Catholic Church and Catholic seminaries. It's a, it's an extraordinary story. Coming up, the hard left's effort at recruitment. They want culture workers. They want people at Starbucks and the universities. That's where they're going. More with Paul Kenger in the final segment
1: of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us.
7: Hi, I'm Kevin McCullough. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, as we close out the year, we'll look back on the much-prayed-for overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now the work begins. And why progress is so difficult. Abortion is to them a sacrament. We'll look at the fentanyl crisis facilitated by a
5: porous border. We have a conscious group of individuals that are poisoning our kids in our country, literally poisoning them.
7: Plus, a fresh challenge to get into God's Word. I think
0: it's important to get up high upon the mountaintop and see the big picture before you start diving into the smaller details
8: and why it's worth the effort. There's an amazing
0: continuity to the scriptures, which can only be explained by divine inspiration.
7: we got all this and more. Be sure to join us and visit our website at christianoutlook.com.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The Communist paper has no real strength of numbers or influence on our nation today. But in saying that, we should not take that to mean that the thought of leftist intellectuals is lacking influence. In fact, there are a host of young people seeking to right the perceived wrongs of the past who are very much influenced by left-wing ideologues. Let's pick up on Sebastian Gorka's conversation with Paul
10: Kengor. Today, the formal Communist Party in America is risible. It's a joke. It's not really a thing. You have the Democratic Socialists of America, you have the DSA, but is there an epicenter... For the new ideological threat, is it simply the colleges? Is it the teacher training academies? Because it's not the Communist Party as was in the 40s and 50s. At some point, there was a transition. What, what is the center of gravity for this ideological entity today, in your opinion?
9: Yeah, and, and the underground party in Honolulu was called the Church by Frank Marshall Davis. Yes. It was Barack Obama's mentor. The man um, on
10: whose knee Obama bounced and admits this whilst not using his real name in his autobiography.
9: That's exactly right. He called him only Frank in the, in, in, in the, in the autobiography. But Communist Party USA today has about 5,000 members. That's it. And really where the action is, and they now have almost 100,000, what they literally call comrades, are the Democratic Socialists of America. And that's the group of AOC— Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and several other members of Congress that have been elected. And by the way, you Democrats listening to me, all right, listen carefully, because if, if you're informed, you know this. And by the way, Nancy Pelosi knows this, and so do a lot of other moderate Democrats. These DSA members get elected by primarying moderate Democrats, all right, they don't run in safe Republican districts. Right? Here in Pennsylvania, they beat people like the Costa brothers, who were like traditional Catholic Democrats from from Western Pennsylvania. So that's where the action is. And then beyond that, there are what uh, People's World, which is the successor publication to the Daily Worker, calls culture workers. And isn't that funny, right, Seb? They're not calling for steel workers. They're not calling for minors. They've given up on truckers, right? Those are all you know, Trump, MAGA, uh, Neanderthals in their view, right? They want culture workers. They want people at Starbucks and the universities. That's where they're going. The proletariat, Martin Malia used to say, would be both the victim class and the redeemer class. They're looking today always for new victim groups to fight the culture war, the culture battles. It might be on gender, it might be on race, it might be LGBTQ, but they're looking more broadly. And sometimes again, the people that are getting involved in these things and duped by them, don't even know that they're get engaging in this kind of Marxism applied to culture or gender or race or whatever else.
1: Thanks again for joining us for Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schubin and the producers, David Bouchon, Jacob Ordunia, Michael Cook, Adam Ramsey, Tim Gantner, and of course, Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt, wishing you a very happy new year and many blessings in the year ahead.